Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the budget problem ahead to avoid another shutdown and the data solution that's driving acquisition success. It's Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co slash psh. Congress has a December 16th deadline to solve the funding problem for federal agencies. The current continuing resolution expires then. Robert Shea is a partner at Guidehouse. He's former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You're the performance guru that I always turn to to uh, help me understand what different things mean for performance in government. What does this CR mean now that we're probably 8, 10, 12 years or longer into the CR era for federal agencies? Welcome. Francis, it's so good to be with you. And for you to call me a guru of anything just warms my heart. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think uh, agencies have gotten in the habit of uh, working under a continuing resolution, working at least for a period of time without a full year budget. Um, it doesn't mean we should um, satisfy ourselves that working outside the regular order is something to be proud of. You know, b- being able to um, work under these crisis conditions is not something that helps improve the government's performance. Um, but, but in fact, agencies have been able to figure this out. What, what you know provide some complexities this time is we're entering a new Congress. The midterms have taken place. Looks like the Democrats will retain control of the Senate um, and Republicans get control of the House. For me, that means the end game between now and January 3rd uh, will be less controversial than if the Republicans had taken both houses of Congress. There's no incentive for Republicans in the Senate You've got two retiring cardinals in Richard Shelby and Pat Leahy, uh, who I don't think want their legacy to be um, a government shutdown. Uh, Congress is also trying to cram the National Defense Authorization Act in there, which would just mean this massive bill. Who knows what else they'll put on that Christmas tree uh, of legislation? But I do suspect we'll get um, um, some normalcy enacted before the new Congress is torn in. Um, and then you'll have, you know, you'll have some um, consistent funding, uh, some new programs initiated, which will give agencies uh, the opportunity to um, get stuff done. Roman Schweizer from Cowan was on the show yesterday talking about the prospects for defense funding and the most positive takeaway that I got out of that conversation is that both parties, both chambers, both authorizers and appropriators all seem to be in general agreement about the main stuff in on the defense side. That's not really the case on the civilian side right now, is it, Robert? Yeah, and I might quibble with the assumption that everything's good on the defense side. The, the defense authorization bill has never not been enacted. So I think there's good prospects that that bill gets done. 
but we still don't have agreement on the top line or the division between defense and civilian spending. That's got to get done before we can move these bills. Now, I agree that that's likely to get done, but it hadn't been done yet. Okay, thank you for the scolding. It, it was a it was a gentle scolding, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for your gentleness. Um, but back to the original question, which, if I take your answer in the way that I think you intended it, it's it's almost shameful. Not your answer isn't shameful. The sentiment conveyed in it is shameful. Managers in government are getting used to doing business in the worst possible way by dealing with CRs on an ongoing basis. This is where we are today. This is where we are today. I'm really worried about what happens post-January 3rd. The leadership in the House is going to have a a margin that's almost as narrow as the one in the Senate. And um, getting the wings of the party to agree on anything is going to be an enormous challenge. That's if we get beyond the leadership elections. Um, You know, on the Senate side, um, replacing Shelby and Leahy will be uh, Patty Murray and Susan Collins. Those are two people who probably well positioned um, to work on a bipartisan, bipartisan basis. I don't know that we'll see that in the, on, on the House side, um, but even getting stuff through a Republican majority is going to be really tough. So I do, I do think we've got rough sledding ahead there. All right. Uh, the congressional outlook then is not fantastic. It doesn't sound like. What's the outlook look like in your view in the executive branch to try to continue to accomplish things at some point in time, whether it's December or March like it was this year, eventually we should probably get something. I I can't imagine the prospect of a continuing resolution for the rest of the fiscal year. So what happens at that point, do you think, to drive any kind of accomplishment, to drive any kind of achievement on things like uh, zero trust executive order, president's management agenda, all of the things that we talk about regarding uh, management on an ongoing basis? I think um, we've got a pretty clear management agenda in place, uh, workforce reforms, um, customer experience, and acquisition and financial management improvement. Um, I see no reason that those initiatives don't continue apace. Uh, moreover, since there's not single party control of the House and Senate, the opportunity to block initiatives is going to be minimized. You know, traditionally, the majority party in the Congress might add riders to bills that would restrict spending on this side of the other thing. Um, I think the uh, equity initiatives are particularly at risk, um, but I don't think those objections are going to materialize. So there's no reason that those don't continue um, as the, as they were on pace uh, uh, prior to the elections. I will say, though, that time is short. If you're a leader in an agency wanting to get stuff done, uh, uh, leave a legacy, uh, make an impact, you need to step up the pace. Um, we need to get hiring reforms in place. 
we need to make sure we are reforming programs so that they uh, that they're they're better serving customers and reaching traditionally underserved communities. Um, the the uh, we recently did a report with the Partnership for Public Service where we did some case studies in the areas of workforce, um, customer experience, uh, and other business areas. And the common theme was your time is short. You got to leverage the president's management agenda to drive change. Uh, because before you know it, uh, the clock will strike midnight. Speaking of the clock striking, the clock is ticking, whether they know it or not, probably on a number of political appointees in this administration too, because we're at that halfway point of the first administration right around the corner where folks start to say, okay, I did my year and a half, two years as a political appointee. I'm ready to transition out. That's right. You know, 18 months is probably a generous time that political appointees usually stay in position. One benefit of uh, the president's party retaining control of the Senate is that um, they'll be able to get nominations through, uh, um, I was going to say easier, but at all. Uh, I think Republicans would have been in a position to block a number of nominees. um, And with Democrats, having a majority in the Senate, you'll see nominees um, get through more easily. Not easily, but more easily. Um, and some of those management positions um, that are critical, uh, you, you'll see you'll see getting filled. We, if, if we see nominees. I'm still not aware of a nominee for the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, for example. No, and the Office of Federal Financial Management withdrew as well, and the performance and personnel office has an acting in position so you're right getting qualified nominees appointments made is going to be really critical um a quick shout out though in the theme of political appointees to a friend of this program and a friend of yours who will become the next commissioner of the internal revenue service yes um danny werfel uh he 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 held that position in the past and has been renominated. And even though I texted him over the weekend asking whether he was out of his mind, <laughs> um, I generally laud the the courage and the willingness of people like him to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we always thank people for their service. And, and I, I really do think he's going to do the nation a great service that beleaguered agency needs leadership. They've got an enormous agenda on their plate. Massive amount of investments are being made, and getting those those to the right places is going to take the right leader. So I'm I'm glad to see that nomination. I'm glad to see you today, my friend. Likewise, look forward to seeing you again very soon. You can read more in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Defense Department's pushing the use of data to help it make better buying decisions. That data is coming from all over the department. Mark Crisco is Principal Deputy Director for Acquisition Policy and Analytics and Enterprise Data at the Department of Defense. Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the evolution of using data in acquisition look like inside the building? Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Francis. I'm very glad to be here and talk about that. It is certainly one of the passions I have. 
in this. First, I want to say that is not new. And what we've been working at here in the Department of Defense for quite a number of years now is how does data, specifically in the realm of acquisition, and let me add a little bit of definition acquisition. We're talking about big acquisition, not just procurement in this. And how can data better help the Undersecretary of Defense, the Department, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, have better insights in decision-making that they need to execute on? And if we think about it, data really becomes the foundation of what we're trying to achieve. And data being the foundation of that, we've been using it for years. But it's been in process, steps, and reports that, frankly, weren't extensible across the department, and it couldn't be leveraged for other uses. What we've been departing on, and what we're talking about here is generally program data. How do we use program data to do the decision-making we have, to be sure that the programs are properly resourced, to make sure that they're on track and moving forward? Uh, Our passion was to bring together the data via the services, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and create alignment so we could do once, use many, and use across the department to whatever decision-making level needed to occur. I'm fortunate that I'm not stuck with making those decisions, but I can help those that need to make those decisions. So the problem has not been collecting the data. The problem has been extracting and collating it and then distributing it to the people who want to use it to make future decisions based on stuff that's already happened. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, close. I'll just add a little bit of differentiation to that. Collecting data at the scale of that requires a bit of formal governance in that term. We need to make sure that the data we're collecting and using mean the same thing. And the issue for not only us in the department, but everyone else, is if you're collecting the data from an infrastructure layer and it was not collected and the bias was not understood, it may or may not be useful for us in the department. So one of the things that we've done is working with the services is coming up with a common lexicon based upon law, policy, and regulation of saying, if this is the piece of data, if this is the program name, we know what constraints, where we can use that, and where, frankly, it doesn't work as well. The where it doesn't work as well part of it is the part that I think is is more interesting to me than the first piece, because it seems that in many cases, you look at data and it's self-evident where it will be useful in the future. How do you discern when something does not apply to something that you're taking on now, you're, you're looking at historical data and you think, well, this isn't really going to inform what we're going to do moving forward. We want to set this aside. Yeah, well, I, I don't think you set it aside. I think it's really, I use the term understanding the data bias. When you collect data in whatever system, in whatever process, you have biased that data in some way, shape, or form generally for your own purposes. And if I think about it, if we're collecting contract data and we're collecting it a contract that's execution, that's a moment of time of that contract. That's not the data, the entirety that that data will be useful. And understanding that you're, you know, I like to say five clicks away from the point where you collected it means that the numbers may be different because time has influenced it. You've continued to operate. 
So it is useful in its use case for the now, but the important thing is understanding why you collected in for what end. If you're collecting contract award data, it doesn't mean that's what the contract expenditure rates are in out years um, because you, it was at the moment of award. And I think that's probably a good description of, of understanding the bias of, of data. All right. This question's maybe more philosophical than tactical, Mark. What does data-driven acquisition look like when it works at its optimal function? What do you see in an outcome of an acquisition where you go, you know what, using data the way that we might not have at some point in the past drove a different and better outcome than we would have gotten the old way? All right, so I'm going to give you a lengthy answer there too, Francis. It's a great question. And when I think about being data-driven, the question is data-driven for whom? Is it the services? Is it the undersecretary? Is it the acquisition processes? Is it the financial process? By being data-driven and, and developing a center core of data where we understand what it is and why it exists and how it exists, we can serve both the undersecretary of defense of making that data visible to her in terms of visualizations and decisions she cares about, whether it be program execution, whether it be portfolio execution, we can use that. If we're talking about it narrowly, more narrowly within the acquisition process, is it helping us in our portfolio reviews of data? If we're thinking about it from a program standpoint, they have a laundry list of actions that they can they will be saddled with. And how can we do that? It is probably the master stroke that I really believe has made this successful. The Army, Navy, and Air Force, and ourselves in OSD uh, have agreed to a core set of data and a core set of meaning. And having that centralized core and promulgating data standards, if you will, I hate using that, but it's, it's the closest representation. Having a governance and data standards that we all agree that we're going to be using the same things means that we've empowered it for different purposes. We don't need to quibble about where we agree or disagree on how program identification was pulled together, how cost information was pulled together. We know that, and each of us can go down a journey for whatever problem we have. In our case, serving the Undersecretary of Defense, and in our case, serving the Deputy Secretary of Defense. In their case, servicing their, uh, supporting their service acquisition executives and their prerogatives. And then when they all come together, they could be talking about the same thing. All right. This question's definitely tactical, Mark. How did you get each of the services that love to do things their own way and love to cast aspersions on the way the other services do things to agree on a core set of data and a core set of standards? Um, I call it coffee with, um, <laughs> we, we have the dilemma of those who us who toil in the data information and process side of the business of not having enough of us and having a core group of us. And, uh, this began about seven, eight years ago, army, Navy and air force. We had coffee and said, look, if we're going to move in this direction, we should move together. And if I maintain a monthly coffee with the components to say, here's what we got going, here's where we're going. And I also took a different hand because this was 
I asked what would help them drive value, not just drive direction to the services and go do this. Uh, clearly, my bosses can provide that direction, but having a conduit in a forum where the services and I can talk together, set the priorities, understand what we're grappling with because and, and tackle it as a community has been the master stroke. It's coffee with, it's governance, it's listening, it's all the things in a new world order, not just fire and forget and say, hey, go do this and see when it comes back. Uh, our priorities are to go faster, not slower. Our priorities are not to be bureaucratic. It's to have open dialogues. And I think dialogue really needs to support that openness. Um, we have law policy and regulation on, on statute and statute saying, you know, the transparency, okay, let's contribute to that dialogue. Let's not just say, okay, so what's the answer here and how do we get there? The reason that I ask that question though is because you know better than I do, but I've seen it many times over the years. The struggle to get to real, actionable, operational jointness across the department has been a struggle in innumerable different efforts across the department. And it sounds like, at least in this particular lane, you've cracked that nut. And I, I wonder from an existential perspective whether there are lessons that we can take from this and apply to any number of these other problems where jointness has been an issue. Yeah, I, I, I believe, and I, I think it gets to an ex existential question, um, how do we do joint better? And joint has almost seemed like a tactic, not an aspiration uh, in the dialogue. I would say the Department of Defense works very well jointly in, in the grand scheme of things. When we get to some matters like this that are just really in the bowels of the organization of this, you see that manifest itself. Um, I think it is the it really becomes the the master stroke of building that relationships, listening, understanding, reflecting, and setting paths forward. Uh, it's not just coffee with. Uh, we take it to a forum where we have a steering group of of identifying priorities because none of us can do everything. Many of us see a thousand things to do, but you got to pick the three things. And once a year, we just had it about uh, two weeks ago where we had the acquisition visibility steering group. And we had a list of priorities, whether they be in policy, metrics we need to collect, whether they be analytics we need to build, whether it be data we need to manage, as well as reaching all the way down to the community and how are we going to help our community become data literate in the acquisition community? Because just managing data in and of itself is not an end. Uh, managing data to complete for a mission is the end we seek. And I do not hold the mission. The undersecretary, deputy secretaries do. And we're here to help them get to where they need to go. And we need to be faster than slower these days. What are the next steps or the next big mileposts to fulfilling that vision that you just laid out of what the end state looks like, Mark? Coming off of this, and, and the next end state really is, is the expansion for where we have a really strong hold on. And I'm gonna, I try not to use too many acronyms here, but we've really been good to getting descriptive statistics and understanding based upon law policy and regulation, where our programs are, 
with cost, schedule, performance, risk, reporting them, making it transparent to Congress, making it transparent to the public through the selected acquisition report. Where are we going to next is expanding those data models to understand where, how mission engineering, how digital engineering works with that digital acquisition. Because the technology and technique opens up great opportunities for us to do this. Well, how do we get there? We need to hold on to what we have and begin to understand how those next extensions are. Um, I will also say this. We are not the only organization that we'll be working with. We'll be working with the Chief Data and Analytic and Artificial Intelligence Office. We'll be working with the CIO. We'll be working with the cost assessment and, and program evaluation teams. We will be working with the comptroller. Uh, it is not just us. We live in a community um, that we can bring our knowledge, our abilities, and work across at a chief functional area, but we can also work and help our people in the near term and what they need to do. And a quick final thought, Mark, it strikes me that this data transparency and flexibility that you are achieving and continue to work on affects areas outside of, ju of the, just the acquisition community in DOD. I imagine this makes it a lot easier, for example, um, to do the uh, auditing that is so important to the financial management community to try to get the uh, department to a clean opinion in the next, I think we're up down to six years now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of, and, and there's a system that I think many people are aware of or have heard of, Ivana, I think the financial community has done a great job using Advana to exploit the data to solve their issue of clean audit opinion. Well, we're part of that puzzle. That is their mission, but we also have the mission of acquisition and sustainment of those programs. And I, we really enjoy a great relationship with uh, the CDAO organization of which Greg Little's a part of and working through the issues here of how do we employ data to do things better. And, uh, it's, it's very helpful uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense and our boss and the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, they want to use the data. They want to improve from their vantage points and their mission areas that they have to do. Um, and being a part of it um, is just remarkably profound and being able to contribute to it is just fantastic. Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Francis. It's been a great discussion. You can read more about acquisition data at DOD in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.